0: In recent weeks, the streets of Hong Kong have been overflowing with protesters calling for the government to withdraw a controversial extradition bill that would allow for people to be extradited to mainland China to face trial. The bill itself was proposed following a homicide involving a Hong Kong couple while in Taiwan in order to allow for the alleged murderer to be brought to justice. But many have seen this as a cover for Beijing seeking to increase its power and influence over the semi-autonomous city. Austin Ramsey is Hong Kong correspondent for the New York Times. He's been covering the situation over there and recently published a fascinating piece exploring the extent to which Beijing has held up its end of the bargain following the handover from British control 22 years ago. And I'm very pleased to have Austin on the line. Thanks very much for joining us today on Triple R. Thank you, Dylan. And so what's the sense on the streets now? I mean, are the protests are still very much happening over in Hong Kong.
2: Yes, um they've been going on for for over a month now. Um the government has suspended um its its push for that legislation, but um not completely withdrawn this bill. And so there's still there, were, uh, there was a gathering of of mothers and fathers on Friday night. There was another protest on uh yesterday last night. Um and so It doesn't feel like people are satisfied with what the government has the government's response thus far and it seems like the protests will continue
0: for time to come yeah and so so Carrie Lam the chief executive of of Hong Kong did resist um, suspending the bill initially and and from what I've read described herself kind of as the the mother of Hong Kong who can't always bow to the demands of her children the people but then she did announce the bill would be suspended but as you say that hasn't appeased concerns why is that
2: well, I think people don't really trust the government and they they fear that um, the the legislature le, the legislative session is is uh, is now ended or is, is ending shortly and they fear that um, when it resumes in the fall that the government will just try and quickly reintroduce and, and push this bill through uh, you know when protests have stopped and people aren't out on the street um, so they they would like a, a sort of a a complete into the process, the, the government to sort of say, okay, we we decided we're not going to, um, you know, continue pursuing this. Um, but the, the the government here is only sort of semi-elected. Uh, roughly half of the legislative seats are directly elected by the public; the rest are chosen by by business groups, um, and the chief executive herself is not directly elected. Um, and so people feel that they don't really have um, much of a say in, in how their, their government is run. And so that's, that's
0: sort of reflective in the suspicion. Yeah. And I mean, your your piece in the New York Times is really interesting looking at the extent to which Beijing, I guess, has has met some of the hopes that were around um, at the time of handover some 22 years ago, and the anniversary of that handover in 1997 was held last Monday, the 22-year anniversary. I understand there were protests on that particular date as well. I mean, has the the mood shifted from one that was initially, I guess, a concern to a specific bill to one that is very much about the um, pro-independence, I guess, of of Hong Kong and and Hong Kong's judiciary and, and that? That sort of thing.
2: Yes, uh, the, the July first is a, is, is a holiday here to mark the, um, the handover. But over for more than a decade now, it's also been a day of, of when there's a large protest march that that protests different issues, but generally speaking, issues award uh, regarding democracy and the, the lack of democracy in the in the territory, and so. In this month, the, the July first came after after weeks of protests over the extradition bill. So, so that protest became very much a sort of not just about the extradition bill, but about more general issues here in Hong Kong. And we've now seen that the the government's sort of inability to respond to demands over the extradition bill have led to um, protests over over many issues, including things that have happened in the past couple of years that at the time, that people were not as motivated to, to get up, turn out on the streets and things like that. And so it's, it seems like it, things are sort of spiralling um, because of the government's uh, inability to, to respond on on this particular issue.
0: Yeah, and I mean, of course there have been protests in Hong Kong in recent memory. Um, listeners would, I'm sure, have heard of the Umbrella Movement um, in 2014, which was sparked by Beijing declaring Hong Kong could hold direct elections, but only if candidates were approved first by a pro-Beijing committee, and, and many people in Hong Kong were very concerned about that, labelling it fake democracy and so on, and that reform has since been shelved. But to what extent do those concerns still very much, uh, I guess, exist in the minds of Hong Kongers uh, in, in relation to, you know, them being able to directly elect their leader and have, it, have a say in who that would be? <laughs>
2: I think it's a, a really big part of of what's happening now. Um, you know, we we talked about the sort of the lack of trust of the government, and there's this real sense that that it's protest is now one of the only things that people really can do to to influence um, the authorities here. Um, and so, you know, we, in these protests, you you see a lot of talk about the specific is, issues like the extradition bill, but you also everyone talks about. Um, the right to elect their leaders, and that's a sort of a deeply held concern here. And when Hong Kong returned from, from British rule to China in 1997, um, one of the pledges that were, was written into the basic law was that, that Hong Kong would, would move towards um, a directly elected government. And that that um, that progress has, has stalled over the past few years. As, as, as you mentioned, the, the umbrella movement was... Uh, months of protest, specifically over that, and the and the the controls that the the Chinese government proposed over any form of direct, direct election for the chief executive, and um, yeah, so that's that's something that I th- I think deeply affects the the protests here, and I think many people think that if if the system were different, that it's possible that they wouldn't have such a such a big pro-
0: protest movement today. Mm. We're speaking with Austin Ramsey, a journalist with the New York Times. He's over in Hong Kong, has been covering the situation and protests over there as the, the Hong Kong correspondent for the Times. And uh, you write in, in your article that there has been overreach by Beijing in the past. So this, of course, isn't the first time we've, we've seen this kind of purported attempt to you know influence um, Hong Kong politics and, and that kind of thing. But this has been often behind closed doors and not Authorized and there was a case that I previously wasn't aware of, the Causeway Books case back in 2015. Can you explain what that uh, that situation is um, and how it reflects, I guess, on the nature of mainland China's efforts to um, control dissidents?
2: So, Hong Kong is 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 part of China, but it has a, a different system, and uh, there's much greater freedom of speech, freedom of the press here, and so. I, over the past few decades, a, a publishing industry has sort of has developed that writes um, books about China, books and magazines and things like that about China, but but for for readers in in mainland China, um, in terms of uh, they they write a lot about elite politics and 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 some of these things are are not totally reliable. It can be very gossipy and things like that, but. For visitors to Hong Kong from mainland China who have, don't have access to any sort of um, in-depth uh, coverage about their, their leaders, um, these, were, these books and these, these publications were really fascinating. So it, this, they created this sort of this industry here of, of books about the Chinese leadership, which the Chinese leadership did not like. And so, um, beginning a few years ago, there was, there was this effort to try and sort of close. The, close that industry, um, by many different ways. The, uh, the Chinese government bought up a bunch of, um, a, ch- a Chinese government controlled company bought up a bunch of bookstores. And now it's, it's very difficult to get sort of more controversial books, um, on the shelves in Hong Kong, but there's also more direct forms of coercion. And there was, there was one company, uh, one publishing house that, in order to make sure their books were sold or got on the shelves, they bought their own bookshop as well. So they had a sort of the entire, you know, from from writing to publishing to selling all within their sort of control, and they were much more difficult to intimidate. And so what the government did is it basically grabbed um, five of its uh, employees. Um, three were taken in, in mainland China um, while they were visiting One was was kidnapped from Thailand, and one was taken from the streets of Hong Kong. And um, that caused a lot of fear in the publishing industry, um, caused that bookshop and that publishing house to shut down. Um, And it's the sort of thing that is in the back of the mind of many Hong Kong people when they consider this extradition proposal. Um, The proposal is, you know, supposed supposed to be just over a you know a set number of of crimes you know uh homicide you know the 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 severe crimes that you would want to extradite somebody Mm. for there's explicit sort of uh protection or is there should be a review that makes sure that these are not political crimes or things like that or things that don't exist as crimes in hong kong but do in mainland china but in the back of people's minds they they fear that it will be used precisely in cases like this Causeway Bay booksellers case, that, that things that upset the, the Chinese, um, the mainland authorities will, they'll just use, would use extradition as a, as a way to, to bring people over. And would, wouldn't even have to take them up the streets as
0: they did before. Yes, yeah, so there's concern that even though these things might be happening, that having a, a legally sanctioned kind of extradition mechanism would make it much easier, I guess, for, for mainland China to undertake those sorts of um, practices and and you know potentially remove people from Hong Kong who are doing things that, that they might not find you know aligns with with the, the vision um, you know of the of the government. That's
2: right. Uh, one, of, one of the people I talked to for the story uh, said to me, you know, in a bizarre sort of way, the kidnapping of somebody in Hong Kong by Chinese authorities is shows a certain amount of respect for the the one country, two systems model, the mm. idea that Hong Kong has its own system, in a sense that while it is a violation of the law, it's not trying to sort of transform the entire law and say we need we need to change it so we we don't have to do this we can just do it through standard channels um and so so what people fear is that is that if if such a system were set up it would just be used much more frequently and um any any man or persons in hong kong could be um vulnerable to extradition from
0: china i read that some protesters in Hong Kong are targeting visitors visitors from the mainland to, I guess, alert them to the types of things that are happening in Hong Kong currently and their particular concerns about it. Do you have a sense of how much people in mainland China know about what's, what's happening in Hong Kong currently?
2: Um, the coverage of, of the Hong Kong protests has been pretty limited in mainland China. Um, the, the authorities don't really want to you know, have this be seen as, as something that uh, a right that Hong Kong people have that um, people in the mainland don't, um, they don't want people to know about the degree of that the, to which these protests are about the, the Chinese government, about the Communist Party. Um, so there hasn't been much coverage at all. It changed a little bit after July 1st, the end of the July 1st protests, uh that day ended with protesters gathering around the the legislature here and after hours of of trying they smashed open the doors and and broke in and there was you know some some graffiti and and vandalism and things like that and that was something that that was covered to to a limited degree within mainland china as sort of a way to show look you know look at how out of control these protests are and things like that is um, you know, sort of to to condemn them, but I think, you know, most people in, in in mainland China don't don't really know what these protests are,
0: don't really know what they're about. Mm. Has it been a significant kind of hit at all for Xi Jinping's authority or the authority of of Carrie Lam that um, that back down on the extradition bill um, was forced? I mean, the back down not to withdraw, but to um, you know temporarily at least suspend the introduction of that bill. Is that a significant thing?
2: I don't think it is that significant for Xi Jinping himself. Mm. Um, you know, under under the sort of, the way Hong Kong is set up, the the central authorities are not supposed to have direct say in sort of everyday governance matters in Hong Kong. Um, although the general thought is that they do have have influence over many matters. But it, it is a real hit to, to Carrie Lam. And, um, you know, it sort of raised questions about her ability, um, to, to serve out her, the remainder of her term. Um, she has, I think three years left of her her first term and then she's eligible for a a second, uh, five year term, but no Hong Kong chief executive since 97 has served a full two terms and it's, it's looking like, um, she won't either. Um, I think it's also, um, Government's overall ability to get things done has taken some 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 hits. Um, the pro-government parties have a majority in the legislature, um, and it's been increased over the past few years because the government has um, courts have removed some pro-democracy lawmakers and 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 barred others um, from running. Um, the government has barred some pro-democracy candidates from running here, so they have they have a you know pretty strong majority in the legislature. But and, and, and they've used that over the past few years to push through a lot of things that, that people haven't haven't really liked, but haven't resisted to the degree that they have over this extradition bill. But I think the general sort of anxiety over the extradition bill has spilled over into lots of things. Mm. So there was um, there was a controversial uh, a, a bit of um, a controversial bit of legislation about um, the national anthem and and Requiring people to sort of sing it with dignity and you could not sort of change the words or or use it in protest or protest during the singing of the national anthem, which was a thing here in Hong Kong uh, during soccer matches with um, Hong Kong's side, particularly when Hong Kong's side played China, Um, but at other matches when um, the national anthem was played at the beginning sort of very pro hong kong fans uh would would do and so that became an issue here and and that legislation was was set to be approved um last month but sort of during the uproar over the extradition bill the government decided that it wasn't worth it to to try and get it done so that so that has been postponed as well and you see this sort of flare-ups over things that the government sort of could have pushed through earlier and people wouldn't have been happy about it but wouldn't have been protesting on the streets but now it seems like the government is really having a hard time doing anything Um, and it feels like
0: that could continue for months to come. Yeah, fascinating and you've been speaking to a whole range of people who have been taking to the streets what's their sense about where this all might lead and, and what ultimately I guess they want to achieve from their action?
2: Yeah, I mean I, 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 most people don't really know exactly yeah. what it'll achieve. There's there's uh, you know, that's the end point of, of all this is still very much up in the air. I mean I think if if there's one thing that that most people out protesting would agree on is that they are trying their hardest to preserve what Hong Kong has and to keep it from deteriorating any further. And so I think their their hopes would be would lie in sort of in that in that realm just to try and keep keep what they have the, the the arrangement with hong kong's return was that it's sort of its own sort of system its own um civil liberties and things like that would continue for 50 years after the handover so we're 22 years in roughly at half the halfway point and many people here fear that like the downward slide has already begun with you know the, the sort of unspoken goal of being making hong kong every year more and more like the mainland so that by the time it we reach 2047 then the difference won't be that noticeable and people here are doing everything
0: they can to try and resist that yeah and it sounds like from what you're saying there's still a a great amount of energy in in the protest movement to keep um kind of you know remaining active in in the the months ahead do you think we will still see people taking to the streets in such huge numbers in the immediate future
2: yes yes uh i there were there are protesters out late last night, several thousand, um, in the, in Kowloon, um, protesting at the a rail station there that was opened, um, over the past couple of year, years or la- sorry, last year that, that basically has a inside the terminal. There's a section that's basically cons- considered like mainland territory. Um, and it's governed by mainland police run, run by mainland authorities and, and their mainland police and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's, there's um, still a lot of energy. I mean, it's the peak of summer in Hong Kong. It's not a terribly pleasant time to be outside on the streets mm. for hours at a time. But, but I think there is still a lot of enthusiasm. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, anger at the government. And I think people are going to continue protesting for weeks, if not months,
0: to come. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on your work in the New York Times to stay across what's happening over there. It's been great having you on Triple R this morning. Austin, thanks so much and hope to speak to you again sometime in the future. Thank you, Dylan. Pleasure. There's perhaps no area of policy in Australia that's been more politicized in the cast past couple of decades than that relating to refugees and asylum seekers. From the Pacific Solution and the Tampa affair back in the early 2000s through to our current regime of boat turnbacks, offshore detention and temporary protection visas, we've seen a securitisation of refugee policy that has often served to imprison and impoverish some of the world's most vulnerable. But why has Australia, a a country that is signatory to a range of international human rights treaties, including the Refugee Convention, been able to implement a suite of policies that have PR on the face of it to so clearly violate international law? And further to that, what opportunities exist for reforming Australia's laws so that people seeking asylum are able to live freely and without fear of persecution? A new and, might I add, very readable book by Fiona Chong and Jane McAdam answers these questions and a whole lot more. It's called Refugee Rights and Policy Wrong. To talk more about it, Fiona joins me today in the studio. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And so this book comes five years after another of yours that considered this topic called Why Seeking Asylum is Legal and Australia's Policies Are Not. Why did you feel the need to publish another book on this topic at this particular point in time?
1: Well, a considerable amount has changed over the last five years. There were legislative amendments in 2014 in particular Um, which removed most of the references to the Refugee Convention in the Migration Act and the international obligations that it prescribes. There's a new provision in the Migration Act which states that when a person is being removed from this country, there is no obligation to consider whether they are in need of protection from persecution or rather serious harm. There were amendments that were made to the Maritime Powers Act, which give the government extraordinary powers to detain people at sea and to transfer them to other countries, again, without having to consider our obligations under international law. So we were concerned about these policies of deterrence, which um, violate our obligations under international law and are quite frankly out of step with basic community values of fairness and decency but another reason that we wrote this book is is because we were concerned about the misinformation that was being disseminated about refugees by politicians and certain segments of the media, which was feeding into public sentiment and causing disquiet and... Um, anxiety about refugees and people seeking asylum. So we've written this book for a general audience. It's designed to be accessible and easy to understand for anyone who's seeking to make sense of what Australia's refugee policies are what the human impact is of those policies and how those policies fall short of our obligations under international law
0: and it responds as well to a lot of myth which has been perpetrated in in recent years as well and i want to get to, to some or many of those points you've just mentioned um, around your reasons for writing this book but i mean so much has happened in the past five years as you mentioned but in all the, the debate and, and public conversation around refugees and asylum seekers in this country kind of feels like it exists in a bit of a vacuum with little appreciation of the broader context and, and history of displacing uh, the displacement of people around the world. And and your book offers a really important correction to that sort of limited mode of thinking, I think. But I think it would be helpful to go back to the post-World War II period, I guess where the international global refugee framework really um, was generated. and and came into force in the Refugees Convention. Um, What were the circumstances around that being brokered at the international level?
1: So the Refugee Convention was drafted in the aftermath of the Second World War which saw more than 50 million people displaced across Europe. Now because the Convention was um, originally drafted with these people in mind, um, it essentially originally drafted only provided protection essentially to um, European refugees displaced by World War II. So, um, as originally drafted, it um, applied to people who were displaced by events occurring before 1951. That's when the Refugee Convention was adopted. Um, And states could also choose to limit the application of the Refugee Convention to um, people who'd been displaced by events occurring within Europe rather than more broadly. So
0: initially it was quite limited in in scope?
1: That's correct. Um, But of course, after 1951, there are new refugee situations which emerge, um, particularly during the era of decolonisation in the 50s and 60s. Um, And of course, these new refugees are not covered by the Refugee Convention, and it's that protection gap which prompts the governments of the world to create the 1967 Protocol relating to refugees. And what the Protocol importantly does is it lifts or removes the um, geographic and temporal limitations of the Refugee Convention. So um, for that reason today, the Refugee Convention and Protocol apply to all refugees universally um and importantly what um, the convention is founded on is this idea that um, international cooperation is fundamental to providing solutions for the world's refugees and when Australia implements policies of deterrence it really undermines that multilateral system that um, the governments of the world have together c- created and
0: so we we had these agreements that are broken at the international level in in the 1950s and 1960s in, in particular that the Creates this kind of global framework for, for managing refugees around the world, and I guess setting the bar at which uh, countries should be accepting refugees and, and doing their their best, I, I suppose, to help those most in need who have been displaced around the world. But as you mentioned, it's been particularly amendments to the Migration Act in Australia that's, that's led to a lot of your concerns about the current trajectory of, of refugee and asylum seeker policy in this country. Can you explain a little bit about? I guess, the relationship between Australia's domestic laws and these international treaties and why we're able to create these domestic laws that seem to be in in indirect contravention of these principles we've signed up to.
1: Sure, so Australia has um, what's known as a dualist legal system, so what that means is that um, international law um, is not directly enforceable in Australian courts. Um, It needs to be um, implemented into domestic law before it is domestically enforceable, which essentially means that Parliament needs to pass legislation giving effect to our obligations under the Refugee Convention in order for those obligations to be enforceable at the domestic level. Um, And that's um, in distinction to um, countries that have a MONIST system where international law is um, automatically directly enforceable in domestic courts. Um, Countries in continental Europe, for example, have a MONIST system.
0: And so, where did Australia start to slip? Because there were these kind of flashpoints in the nineteen seventies, for example, where the Fraser government did, um, you know, end up welcoming, uh, you know, large numbers of Vietnamese um, refugees into the Australian community. Then we have mandatory detention introduced by the Keating government, and then the Pacific Solution and, and offshore processing and so on that comes in the two thousands. When, in your view, did we start to, I guess, move away from those high-minded ideals that are set out in the Refugees Convention? and and protocol?
1: I think that's a great question because um, for so many years Australia did demonstrate leadership on um, refugee protection. I mean um, going back even before the 1970s um, at the end of World War II Australia took in 170,000 displaced people from the camps of Europe. In fact in 1949 and 1950 Um, 48%, nearly half of our annual immigration intake was comprised of refugees and displaced people. Mm. Today it's less than 10%. Um, You mentioned the 1970s. That's when Australia first received boats of Vietnamese refugees in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. At that time... um, People were brought ashore, their claims for protection were processed fairly and in compliance with international law. Um, They were not mandatorily detained, they were treated humanely and those who were found to be refugees were granted permanent protection. And Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser explained to an initially wary public that this is what they deserved. Um, In the 1980s, we've got um, Prime Minister Bob Hawke, who, um, after the horrors of Tiananmen Square, grants asylum to more than 40,000 Chinese students who are in Australia at the time, Um, something that he described as an instinctive act of leadership. Mm. Um, But by the 1990s... um, policies start to change so um, we have the introduction of mandatory detention in 1992 by the Keating government, um, the introduction of temporary protection visas by the Howard government in 1999 and by the year 2000s those already already draconian policies are bolstered by um, boat interceptions and turnbacks and offshore processing, um, the curtailment of um, rights to review decisions that are made by immigration officials, the denial of resettlement in Australia. um, All of these policies are are deeply concerning.
0: Mm. And you mentioned uh, temporary protection visas there. and It was interesting in your book you note uh, Philip Ruddick, who then was the Immigration Minister, responding to uh, Pauline Hanson's uh, suggestion that temporary protection visas, visas would be, you know, a reasonable approach to, um, I guess, limiting what, what asylum seekers are able to access in the Australian community. And he criticised these as unconscionable and something that, you know, we should not um, at all be, be introducing to people who, who are already, you know, traumatised and, and, and suffering to, to a large extent as well. But then one year later, the Howard government introduces temporary protection visas. They go away for a while under the Labor government, but now they're very much back.
1: That's correct, yes. Um, uh, It's really instructive to look at that history. Um, As you say, um, temporary protection visas were first proposed by Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party. And um, Um, then immigration minister Philip Ruddock um, categorically rejected the idea he said it would be highly unconscionable in um, a way that most people would reject Um, and of course that's because um, temporary protection visas um, are documented to have um, significant adverse consequences for refugees and people seeking asylum as you say Um, These people generally um, have suffered from past persecution and trauma and um, if they're given protection visas that last only three to five years it makes it very difficult for them to um, re-establish themselves in a new country. They live in a state of anxiety and fear um, facing the ever-present prospect of being removed from this country if their visa is not renewed Um, and, and what's Also really significant is that if you're on a temporary protection visa, you don't have the right to family reunion. So um, you don't have the right to sponsor your family members to come to Australia to join you. You don't have the right to travel overseas to see them either, unless the immigration minister expressly grants you permission to travel overseas. And that just makes it all the more difficult to um, integrate in this country and establish a life.
0: Mm. Absolutely. We're speaking with Fiona Chong, a lawyer and co-author of the book Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs, a frank, up-to-date guide by experts, which is what we're speaking about today. And, I mean, offshore detention and and boat turnbacks are are often spoken about in the public domain, and I want to get to that in a moment. But I want to talk about some of these other measures that are taken to limit what asylum seekers living in the community are, are able to access. So temporary protection visas is one limitation, but there have also been cuts to status resolution support services payments um, which again limits what what those in our community are able to access as well as uh, a reduction in funding to to legal aid for asylum seekers and refugees as well and this fast track processing which put an incredible burden on people who you know don't speak english as their first language to submit these incredibly large amounts of, of papers to justify their claim for asylum i mean in terms of what we see now and and the constraints on what people are able to access asylum seekers are able to access in the community, is this the worst we've seen in recent times?
1: You know, it's a good question. I think that our policies really have hardened. Um, you know, we, we did have um, harsh policies of deterrence applying from the nineteen nineties, um, but uh, but yes, I, I do think that this is this is one of the harshest that we've seen in our history.
0: Yeah and and I mean you spoke a little bit about those points in Australia's history where We did, um, I I guess, take the moral high ground and accept asylum seekers and and refugees into the community openly, and politicians felt confident enough to advocate for that publicly. Australia has one of the oldest refugee resettlement programs in the world, which you talk about in your book. So that is the process of selecting and and transferring refugees from places around the world uh, where they've been found interim uh, protection, yet we have this incredibly draconian, punitive um, approach to people who you know come in in boats for example and and seek protection that way how do we account for that apparent contradiction in in our approach
1: i think there are a lot of assumptions that underpin the policy which as we explain in our book are simply not founded on evidence so for example um one of um, the justifications that's often put forward for our policies of deterrence in relation to those who arrive by boat is this idea that the policy is necessary to save lives at sea. Um, I don't think that anyone disputes that as a matter of principle it's um, a very important thing to save lives at sea, the question is how we do it. Um, And the problem with our current policies of deterrence is that they don't address the underlying conditions that lead people to take boat journeys in the first place um, let's recall that the vast majority of people who come to this country by boat are found to be refugees people who have a well-founded fear of persecution or who otherwise face a real risk of significant harm um, in their home countries um, so what happens to people who are so-called deterred from taking that boat journey they're likely to still be refugees fleeing persecution and when obstacles are placed in their way they are likely to either remain trapped in their home countries or forced to take alternative and no less dangerous routes to safety so um, people remain at risk elsewhere it's just that when we implement policies of deterrence um, we push the problem away we displace it out of sight out of mind
0: and another related myth to that is this sense of this idea of the queue that people who are hopping on boats and seeking to be granted asylum that way are jumping the queue in a sense but as you write in the book that is a complete misnomer
1: that's correct. This this idea of the queue um, suggests to people that if refugees simply waited patiently overseas they would eventually be resettled and um, that's simply not the reality. Um, Your chances of being resettled in um, a safe third country do not um, necessarily depend on how long you've been waiting, but on other factors such as UNHCR's assessment of your vulnerability and your suitability for resettlement and the priorities of resettlement countries. and less than 1% of the world's refugees are resettled annually. So this idea of, of the queue is um, is deeply problematic.
0: Yeah. We're speaking with Fiona Chong all about her co-authored book with uh, Jane McAdam, Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs, a frank up-to-date guide by experts. And we're kind of trying to take in as much as we possibly can in the course of this interview because there is um, um, a lot to, to get through and, and lots to... Discuss, but I mean, we can talk about these issues now. And and in your book, you point to evidence that some of these myths are, are you know completely baseless. Yet it feels like, for example, the logic of uh, boat turnbacks and and the draconian offshore detention regime is in place in order to prevent deaths at sea. Has kind of, at the political level, won the order of the day? I mean, we haven't seen any real sustained opposition from the Labor Party, the the other major political party, on this matter at all. How can you translate (laughs) this type of, um, I guess, you know, uh, these facts to... National conversation at the political level as a kind of way of countering some of these arguments that have been so prominent in recent years?
1: I mean, that's one of the reasons that we wrote this book. Um, The problem with misinformation is that it leads people to support bad policy. So, what we hope is that um, by um, providing an evidence based approach, um, people will, will see that um, our policies are based on deeply problematic assumptions.
0: Yeah, and you can hope that <laughs> it reaches those those who most need need to read them. But I mean, there have been there's a lot of secrecy around what happens uh, at sea uh, in the aftermath of Operation Sovereign Borders. There hasn't been a willingness at all for the government to engage on these matters or allow journalists to even you know really report on what's actually happening. There have been some allegations that the Australian government, and these are allegations, has paid people smugglers up to $30,000 to turn boats back to Indonesia which is remarkable if true that hasn't been properly investigated because I think as you write in your book there was an election called (coughs) shortly after an inquiry was set up to look into this particular matter but that seems to undermine the whole logic that Australia is trying to break the business model of people smugglers so-called people smugglers if we're actually paying them to return asylum seekers back to the country they've come from.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, even if you accept the government's argument on its own terms, um, the need to... As you say, break the people smugglers' business model. The fact that um, these allegations, very serious in nature, were made that the government had paid US um, dollars, thirty thousand US dollars, to um, people to um, people smugglers to take people back to Indonesia, um, is really concerning. And I think what's what's also equally concerning is the fact that um, there was a Senate inquiry that was established to investigate um, this alleged incident, and um, the government was unwilling to provide information to the Senate inquiry Um, and in the lead up to a general election um, Parliament was dissolved. In 2016. Um, That's right and the Senate inquiry um, lapsed. The Senate committee did recommend that it be reconstituted to investigate the matter after the election but that was not a recommendation that was acted upon by the government.
0: Is this something that, that you could imagine that the Labor Party putting pressure on the government to investigate? I mean, we haven't heard a lot, you know, in the lead-up to the election this year. Asylum-seeker and refugee policy really wasn't, wasn't mentioned by either major party, which is a bit of a, um, you know, a difference in terms of elections that have been fought um, on this matter before where the issue has been deeply politicised. I mean, do you read that as them essentially reading from, from the same or very similar playbook in terms of our approach?
1: It is really concerning that um, there did not seem to be much made of of this secrecy. Um, it, do- it doesn't help, I think, that the government's policy is is not to comment on on water matters. It makes it difficult to um, extract information about exactly what is happening um, at sea. Um, but of course, um, there have been reports by um, investigative journalists and non-governmental organisations and researchers, which have shed light on um, what seems to be happening um, at sea, and and those accounts are are really um, very concerning. I mean. Um, one of our um, concerns about boat turnbacks is um, that we are at risk of breaching our most fundamental obligation under international refugee law, which is um, the principle of non mm.
0: Um
1: What that means is that Australia is required not to return people to places where they are at risk of persecution or, or other significant harm, or indeed to return them to a place which might send them onwards to such place. Um, Now, what we know about boat turnbacks is that um, when boats are turned back to Indonesia, um, the government does not assess whether people on board these boats have protection claims to make. So that means that every single time a boat is turned back to Indonesia, there is a risk that Australia is breaching its obligation of non refoulement mm.
0: And we know um, from those who have been assessed that, that the percentage is up around, I think, what, 80 or 90% in terms of those who have a genuine fear of persecution.
1: That's right. When you look at official statistics mm. published by the government itself, um, the vast majority, up to 90% of people who come to this country by boat are ultimately found to be refugees in need of protection. Um, now what we do know also is that in relation to boat turnbacks to sri lanka and vietnam um, the government has what it calls an enhanced screening process in place um, that's essentially a um, a preliminary screening interview that's conducted at sea to assess whether people may engage australia's protection obligations um, If a person is assessed to potentially engage our obligations, they are screened in, um, presumably taken to Manus Island or Nauru Mm. where their claims for refugee status can be assessed. If they're screened out, that is the end of the matter. They're sent back to their country of departure or their country of origin. Um, And there are many aspects of the enhanced screening process that are deeply concerning to us which make it an inadequate mechanism for properly considering people's protection claims. I mean, um, these are interviews that are conducted at sea. Um, Asylum seekers are generally in quite a vulnerable state. Having spent days at sea, they may be exhausted, distressed, confused, seasick. Um, It's it's a vulnerable situation to be in um, and it makes it very difficult to properly engage with the process. Um, there have been reports also that these enhanced screening interviews are, are quite brief, that they're sometimes conducted by um, telephone um, over a noisy line where people mm. have difficulty hearing and understanding each other. This
0: is why people are, are on boats. Is that is that when this is happening?
1: That, that's right. This is it's this remarkable. is happening at sea when people are on boats. Um, there's also no independent um, oversight over the process. There's no. Um, there are no rights to seek review or appeal of decisions that are made following an enhanced screening interview. And there's no evidence either that people are being advised of their right to seek legal representation or advice. So. That really significantly increases the chances that we are incorrectly screening people out, sending them back home to places where they fear persecution and other serious human rights violations.
0: It's quite remarkable that those screening processes could be seen as in any way adequate when we have people detained in on Manus Island and Nauru for many many years and we're told that it takes a long time to assess people's asylum applications yet seemingly you know this is being done with without much fanfare at all over a noisy telephone line and then potentially if they're not adequate enough they'll be sent back potentially to places where they're in in very real danger.
1: Indeed it's 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 really very perverse
0: yeah absolutely I mean we're learning a lot more about the conditions on offshore detention camps in Manus Island and Nauru from the incredible work of people like Behruz Bachani and Abdul Aziz Muhammad who amazingly is a former detainee on Manus Island but ended up claiming and being granted asylum in Switzerland after traveling to Geneva um, to be uh, to receive a human rights award so At the international level, you know, there's other countries who are offering asylum to people who we have not granted asylum in Australia. We've been criticised by the UN. We've been um, celebrated by (laughs) the US President Donald Trump for our draconian policies. In recent times, I mean, what does this do to Australia's international standing? Having these types of policies in place, because clearly some governments are looking to Australia as an example of how they could adopt similar policies. Yet also, we're being criticised, rightly, by international human rights bodies such as the UNHCR.
1: Uh, That's a great question. It, um, I mean, our current approaches. really undermine the international cooperation that is required to provide protection to the world's refugees, and they do great damage to um, our reputation internationally. It it is really concerning that there are countries um, around the world that are now looking to Australia as um, an example of how you might respond to refugees fleeing persecution. Mm. Um, I mean, there's a chapter in our book called Regional Protection, which... um, addresses um, how Australia might um, respond to refugees seeking our protection um, differently and um, and what we propose is that um, it's, it's very important that Australia expands the the protection space in the Asia-Pacific region because the problem at the moment is that Australia is one of the few countries in our region who is a signatory to um, the Refugee Convention which means that there are very few places where refugees and people seeking asylum can um, seek and access protection. Um, that's why people get on boats and come to Australia. Um, So what we really need to do is um, build the capacity of countries in our region to um, conduct refugee status determination um, and um, expand our resettlement um, places that we offer to refugees. Um, We really need to expand the protection space um, and we need to to lead by example because um, we have the capacity to to accept refugees um um, there there are many countries in the asia pacific region that that don't have the financial or the technical capacity to accept refugees and when we um implement policies of deterrence and deflection when we turn back boats to indonesia when we refuse to resettle refugees who um, are registered with unhcr in indonesia um we're not walking the talk, you know, we, we are right. not We're setting not a good example. example. We we really need to lead by example.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because why would countries start to take Australia's lead if we have these incredibly punitive and, and draconian policies and are essentially abrogating and outsourcing our responsibility for um, you know, the, the refugee crisis? Refugee flows around the world to very poor nations such as PNG and Nauru. And, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the, the conversation happening at the political level and how limited it's been in recent times, but I noticed that you lost launched your um karen phelps launched your book up in sydney the former independent uh, short-lived mp for, for wentworth up there and she of course um you know played a very significant role in the last parliament bringing forth the Medivac bill which you know may be threatened in the current parliament we have given that the coalition has a majority in the house but Do you see a real role for independence in the new parliament that we have? Because we've seen, for example, Helen Haynes talk about refugee rights, um, the the newly um, inaugurated member for Indi, Karen Phelps as well. People who aren't necessarily, you would say, on the left of the political spectrum, but see this as a very significant issue that they want to see change on.
1: Yes, I do see a really important role for um, independent members and indeed um, any politician who's sitting in Parliament. Um, I mean, the government has introduced a bill to repeal the the medevac legislation. Um, um, it's in the Senate. Um, that will be a bill that requires the support of um, at least four crossbenchers to, to pass. Um, so there is a very fundamental role that, that can be played Absolutely. by these crossbenchers. Um, I mean, this, this medevac legislation is, is, is really concerning to us. Um, it, it provides um, a pathway for critically sick people on Manus Island and Nauru to access the medical care that they need. Um, and, and when you look at the statistics, I mean, um, over 80% of people on Manus Island and Nauru suffer from depression, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. Strikingly, um, health experts say that the levels of trauma that they've seen offshore exceed those in war zones and disaster zones around the world. 24 people have died offshore on Australia's watch. Um, and just the stories that, that, that have come out about people who, who need urgent medical care. I mean, um, there was man, one man who suffered a, a stroke um, and needed to see a cardiologist, a neurologist and a psychiatrist and all he was given was an aspirin. Um, not another person who had his um, kneecap torn loose which was causing intense pain and swelling um, and all he was given was a paracetamol and a bandage. Mm. And we know that before the Medevac legislation was passed um, there were often um, significant delays um, in people being medically evacuated off um, Nauru and Manus Island um, even against the clear advice of doctors so this is really important legislation.
0: Yeah and I mean we're just about out of time but I want to ask you I mean your specialisation is in international law and we've spoken a little bit at the start of this conversation about Australia's dualist legal system and how that I guess proposes some some presents some limitations to the extent to which they're are legal mechanisms for challenging Australia's current refugee and asylum seeker regime because those international treaties and covenants have to be interpreted into domestic laws in Australia. But do you see any way in which these um, practices Australia has implemented in the past, let's say five years since you released your your last book, could be challenged? Uh, you know, at, at the international level.
1: I mean, y- yes. Um, there are. Um, avenues available for challenging um, our policies at the international level so um, for example um, there was the ICC petition Um, a group of lawyers um, petitioned the International Criminal Court seeking to um, have the ICC prosecute um, Australian officials and Australian contracted service providers for crimes against humanity being committed Mm. um, on Manus Island and Nauru. Um, Crimes against humanity, including um, deportation, unlawful imprisonment and torture. Now, um, in order for the prosecution to take place, well, first, the ICC needs to um, exercise its discretion to to prosecute, um, but they will also need to show that there has been a wide widespread or systematic attack against a civilian population, which is quite a high threshold. Mm. Um, I think at the end of the day, you know, these efforts may be mounted at the international level, but what we really need to do as Australian citizens is hold our government to account for its actions.
0: Absolutely. And that's a very fitting note to end on. I think um, we've been speaking with Fiona Chong um, all about her book, uh, co-authored book, Refugee Rights and Policy Wrongs, a frank up-to-date guide by experts. It's very readable and may answer some of the questions you have around um, Australia's refugee and asylum seeker policy, how it's uh, kind of shifted and changed in recent years and potentially what can be done about that um, and some possible alternatives as well. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today on Triple R. Thanks so much for having such a generous and, and open conversation.